0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Father, as we read these words as we hear Peter's confession of faith resound we join in it and ask that you might bring your scripture alive to us that you might quicken our hearts Lord that we might believe what Peter believed confess what he confessed we ask it in Christ's name Amen. If you join us this afternoon for Dan's ordination, and I truly hope you will, there's a certain moment that you will witness. When Dan kneels before us and the ordained men present, the commissioners from our various churches and others lay hands upon him and pray for him. And in that laying on of hands, set him apart, consecrate him for the gospel ministry. All the men who do that have had that done to them. And the men who laid hands on them earlier had hands laid on them. Generation after generation, going back to the days of the apostles. And as you think about that moment and you think about those hands stretched out over generations, it's impossible not to think of of the transfer of ministry, of the transfer of, of spiritual power. What is being handed down by those hands? What's being handed down is a message what's being handed down is a confession what's being handed down is a faith put into words by peter at this moment this apostolic confession this moment of clarity on the part of the apostle clarity in the wilderness Matthew, as he continues to follow Jesus in his ministry, takes us to Caesarea Philippi. This is a Roman administrative town out on the hinterlands of Israel. So once again, we're at the margins. We're skipping back and forth on the edges of what qualifies as Israel. We're in the sticks. We're on the frontier We're about as far away as you can get from the centers of power. And it's ironic that here in the middle of nowhere, here in a place of no significance, the declaration of the identity of the Messiah will take place. If you think about that distance, it's fascinating. Matthew 15 opened, if you recall, with Pharisees and scribes sent from Jerusalem the heart of the nation to challenge the teaching of Jesus we saw in matthew 16 pharisees and sadducees overcoming their differences so that they could stand together as insiders against the outsider jesus the message could not be clearer at the heart of the nation people don't get it at the heart of the nation their hearts are directed wrongly. They're blind to the reality of what God is doing. It's here, on the frontier. It's here, on the edges. Out in the margins. Here, in the wilderness. That it's possible to find clarity. Except, of course, that even here, most people don't see it. It's not as if they don't get it in Jerusalem, but out here everybody understands. Out here there's darkness too. Out here there is blindness as well. But in the midst of all this blindness, one man sees. One man has a moment of clarity. And Matthew gives us an opportunity to reflect on what that means. What was it that Peter saw? What was it that Peter said that made such a difference? What did it mean? That's the question we're going to ask ourselves. We're going to look at Peter's confession. Try to understand it. We're going to ask ourselves what that confession says about the church's foundation. And then we'll ask what it means to have the keys to the kingdom. We'll start with the confession. Peter's confession. The apostolic confession. Matthew says when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asks His disciples a question. Jesus is setting the tone here. Jesus is deciding that the time is right. He puts the question to them. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they give Him answers. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. None of these are unflattering responses. If people are saying Jesus is like John the Baptist, He's like Elijah, He's like Jeremiah, I mean, clearly, they have a pretty high view of Jesus. They see there's something special about Jesus. They're trying to identify what it is. They're trying to name it. They're trying to do honor to what they see Jesus is so when you hear these responses recognize that these aren't dismissals these aren't insults they're not saying oh we think Jesus is a moron we think Jesus is a false teacher Jesus is just a carpenter from Nazareth who has no business saying the things that he's saying no what people are saying about Jesus is impressive they're paying him compliments but they're still wrong they're still wrong in how they answer the question. This is a common strategy. It's a thing that we see all around us. People rejecting Jesus even today with flattery. People saying wonderful things about Jesus. Things that are wrong. Things that aren't true. Praising Jesus as something less than He truly is. Honoring him as a prophet or a teacher while stopping short of this apostolic confession. I think Jesus is a great man. I think Jesus is a wonderful teacher. I think the world would be a better place if more people were like Jesus. That's nice, but it's not enough. You may think that Jesus was a great man, that He was a fine instructor, even a profound philosopher, but faith is not thinking well of Jesus. Faith is not having a high opinion of Jesus. Faith is confessing Him. That's different. Jesus implies as much. He doesn't stop questioning. He gets these responses, but then He turns to His inner circle He says, who do you say that I am? I can imagine the nervousness that they must have felt, the silence that must have ensued, the implication that these other answers weren't the right answers. And now Jesus is quizzing them. Who do you say that I am? And you can imagine in that moment, there were 11 guys saying, if we wait long enough, Peter's going to say something. He always does. You can imagine their silence and their relief when he opens his mouth knowing probably what he says it's not going to be right. Oftentimes, he gets it a little bit wrong, but at least he's the one who's going to get the rebuke, not us. And then Peter opens his mouth and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the right answer. Peter is absolutely correct. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then he adds something to it. He says, You are the Son of the living God. He's affirming two aspects of the identity of Jesus. When he says, You are the Christ, Christ, of course, is just the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. God promised us a king to come in the line of David. Kings are anointed in order to be set aside for their reign. You are the one. And then, you are the Son of God. You are, as we would say, a divine person of the triune God. He's acknowledging the kingship which has been at the forefront of Matthew's Gospel. And he's acknowledging the divinity of Jesus all rolled up into that one confession of Christ. Now, These are realities that have been hinted at from the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel right up until this moment. But now Jesus has decided the time is right. And Jesus has posed the question and Peter has said the words. It is out in the open. There is no mystery anymore about who Jesus is. Peter has named Him. And this changes everything. It changes everything in Matthew's Gospel because from here on out the focus shifts. From chapter 1 To chapter 16, the question is, who is He? But now that question is answered and the question becomes, what must He do? If He is the Messiah, then what must the Messiah do? And so Jesus immediately will start talking about the necessity of the cross. He'll start speaking to His disciples about everything that has to take place in His death, His burial, in His resurrection. We look back with the benefit of hindsight and we see these events with a fullness that they would not have appreciated when they first happened. Right? We can see the fullness of Peter's confession. We can say, oh, this actually hits on two aspects of who Jesus is. Both His, his kingship and His divinity, as I just said. I don't think that would have been obvious to the disciples hearing Those words. Not yet. It's easier for us than it would have been for them. What happened here was deeper than perhaps it first appeared. Jesus reveals that there's something deeper going on than there may seem. It's not just that Peter's made a confession and that his confession is right. Jesus says this confession of yours You didn't make this in your own strength. There's something more going on when you say these words. This confession is not human. It's divine. And it calls us to think about what this confession means, where it comes from, and how it serves as the church's foundation. How does this apostolic confession become the church's foundation? Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus doesn't give Peter credit for his perceptiveness, in other words. Jesus doesn't say, finally, (laughs) finally. I was beginning to lose hope, guys. But finally, you get it. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for seeing what I've been trying to show you. Congratulations. You are the first disciple to actually get it. No. Jesus doesn't pat Peter on the head and say good job. He doesn't congratulate him for his fine mental acumen. Instead, He credits God's power which has revealed his identity to Peter. So he doesn't say congratulated are you. He says, blessed are you. He doesn't say you've done something great. He says you have received something wonderful. What Peter has just said is not some thought in his mind. What he said is a truth revealed to him by God. And it's interesting because you see this happening throughout the course of Jesus' ministry. We saw this when the disciples are freaking out on the boat and then Jesus walks on the water across from them and they freak out a little more. But eventually when Jesus enters the boat after they've seen Peter walk on water and then been saved, Jesus enters the boat, the storm stops, and they worship Him. Like they're worshiping Him. They know He's more than just special. They know He's divine. But in that act, could they have explained why they were doing what they were doing and why it was okay that they were doing it? Probably not. It was a spontaneous reaction. It was the Spirit working in them. We saw on Palm Sunday the same kind of phenomena when we saw crowds singing Hosanna to Jesus, worshiping Jesus if you'd been a news reporter there and had grabbed a few of those people and said, hey, explain to me why you're doing this. What, what is the significance of Jesus? They probably wouldn't have talked to you about you know, fully God, fully man, and all of the theological implications that we, with hindsight, would look at. They might have said, I don't know, but I was just caught up. There was something inside me that moved me to say what I said. I didn't feel like I could do anything else but worship Him. These intervening gifts, these revelations where people are able to express things with their lips that they couldn't perhaps formulate with their minds. This is what's happening here. Peter is giving revelation that he has received from God and it names who Jesus is. Spirit is granting understanding that runs ahead of people's actual recognition. We might long for those days and say, I wish I could experience something like that. What would it be like to be so moved by the Spirit that I would confess more than I know? that I would glorify Him beyond the limits of my understanding. But you don't actually have to long for that experience because we have that experience constantly. People come to faith constantly without being able to explain what it is that God has done in them. Without being able to articulate to the satisfaction of a theologian what it is exactly that they believe. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with confessing your faith in Jesus and struggling to explain all the ins and outs of what that means. Jesus, when He witnesses that kind of confession, says, blessed are you because this is not something you have done. Blessed are you because your confession of faith is a gift. It's been given to you by the Father. When he says that, then he turns to Peter. And he says, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Just explain the meaning of the word Christ. It means Messiah. It is not, of course, Jesus' last name. He wasn't Mr. Christ or anything like that. It's a title. It's like Messiah Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, like that. But Peter also has one of those. Peter also has one. Peter's name is not Peter. Simon Peter is not like his first name and last name. Peter is like a nickname that he was given. Peter means rock. So one of the disciples was called Rock. That was his name. He was like the rock. You know, he was the guy I mean, the, the, the words convey a certain solidity, a certain strength. Like if everybody calls you the rock, you know that you've got you know, some, some staying power, right? You know that people are kind of depending on you. You are my rock. And that's Peter's nickname. He didn't get it growing up in school because he was a tough guy. He didn't get it on the boats because of all the fishermen. He was the one you most wanted to have at your side in a fight, Jesus gives him this name. Now, Matthew's been using it all along. He's been referring to Peter as Peter, but it seems chronologically like that's a little bit anachronistic. It may very well be that this is the moment that Jesus gives him this name. Simon Bar-Jonah, you are the rock. Wow. If Jesus gives you a nickname, that's pretty cool. You know, other people go around and they just get called what, what they were born, but I'm the rock. Jesus named me this and it means something. Now, oftentimes what preachers will want to do about now, at least the Protestant ones, is point out to you that what Jesus says is is complicated. Jesus says you are Peter and that means rock and then Jesus turns around and says on this rock I will build my church but but on this rock I will build my church that word rock that's not the same word that he used when he said you are Peter right he said you are Petros and upon this Petra I will build my church that's the difference Petros versus Petra Petros is the male form of that Greek word for rock, Petros. Petra, of course, is the name of a Christian rock band from back in the day. But it's also the feminine form of the same word. That's the distinction. right? One is in the masculine, one is in the feminine. It's not two different words. It's the same word. It's just grammatically a little bit different. There's a little bit of distance between them, but not as much as people sometimes make it seem. Both of them, for example, are in the singular Jesus, when He refers to the rock that He will build His church on, it's in the singular, in other words. Just like the rock that He refers to Peter as. Also, interestingly, when Jesus says I will give you the keys, you might want to say that's the difference, right? He says you, singular, are Peter. But when He says I will give you the keys, that's going to be plural. And it doesn't mean Peter. Wrong. It's singular too. I will give you, singular, the keys. So Peter is being spoken to individually here. Jesus is speaking to the rock, to Peter. And He's saying, I will give you the keys. On this rock, I will build My church. But He's also speaking to Peter individually as a representative of the whole, as a representative of the people who Peter leads. In other words, the apostles. We know that he's speaking in this representative sense because the Bible refers to the foundation of the church as apostolic, the apostles, not just Peter himself. We know it because in Matthew 18, which we will get to uh, shortly, the keys to the kingdom, which are associated with binding and loosing, are given to the apostles in the plural. In fact, this gift seems to depend on plurality. It needs to be entrusted to a plurality of elders, we'll see Jesus say in chapter 18, "If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them." So he speaks to Peter as an individual, but an individual who represents a group, and the group he represents are the apostles. This apostolic confession has this corresponding gift of keys to the kingdom granted to them. I will build my church, Jesus says. In Greek, it sounds something like oikodemeso muteneklesian. Oiko meso. so it's not just I will build, but. I will house build. You hear the the word oikos, which is house or household. So this kind of building is, is house building. So the church, the ecclesia, that Jesus will build is a house for himself, a house for God, a household for God, as Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. Paul describes the church as the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The whole structure, he says, is joined together in Christ, and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That idea that uh, Paul cites of Christ as the cornerstone he doesn't make that up, that's prophecy. In Psalm 118, in verses 22 and 23, we read, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. When we get to Matthew chapter 21, Jesus Himself will quote Psalm 118. And interestingly, Peter quotes it too. In the book of Acts, when Peter is called on the carpet, when he is challenged by what authority he preaches... His answer is not, I preach on my own authority. Instead, he gives this answer. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That apostolic foundation of the church is also pictured for us in John's vision of the New Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, John writes, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So Christ says, I will build my church on this rock, on this foundation. And the foundation is the apostolic confession of faith. The words given to Peter. That gift of revelation. In what sense are the apostles the foundation? That confession. That's the key. It's the confession that is the foundation. In the same way that the sons of Abraham are those who confess the faith of Abraham, the church is built of those who confess the same faith that Peter confesses on behalf of the apostles. The confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that is the foundation on which the house of God is built. As we confess that same faith, we are added like bricks to that structure. Jesus places us on the walls of the house that He is building. That is how He builds His church. As that gift of revelation is given to us. As we confess our faith in Him, we become the dwelling place of God. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that he is building. Gates, of course, are a defensive structure, and so it's not unusual for people to emphasize here that the vision of the church is a vision of advance, not retreat. The idea is not the church will hunker down, behind its walls, and that its walls will be so strong that that though Satan batters them over and over again, somehow they will prevail. Instead, the metaphor, it's flipped. The gates are Satan's gates. The defensive war is Satan's war. And Satan is the one who will lose it as the church advances. But gates in Scripture have another significance, a deeper significance. They're not just defensive structures. Mostly, when you see gates mentioned in the Bible, gates are seats of authority. Gates are where people sit if they have the power to judge, the power to open the doors or close them. The people with that authority sit at the gates of the city. In Genesis 19, Lot sits at the gates of Sodom because he's a man of authority in that city. In Esther chapter 2, Mordecai sits at the king's gate because Mordecai exercises authority on behalf of the king. So when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that he is building, the implication is that the authority of Satan will not prevail against the church. That the places where the authorities of this world sit in judgment, the places where Satan sits and decides when the doors are open and when the doors are closed, that those gates will fall. That those authorities will have nowhere to sit. That Christ is building a house that will topple those authorities. Generation after generation, believer by believer, Jesus is building the church into a dwelling place for God. When you confess that He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, He lays you like a brick on the walls of His celestial city. And no authority has the power to prevail against Jesus' building work. When He lays the bricks, they stay laid. And no one can take them away from Him. Whoever confesses what the apostles confessed is part of the structure. Whoever denies what they confessed is on the other side of that wall. The good news is, for those on the outside, that Jesus has handed over the keys. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the keys of the kingdom, both here and in Matthew 18, are described as a a, a kind of loosing and binding, or opening and shutting. And the binding and the loosing has another connection between earth and heaven. Right? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Jesus says this in the future tense, I will give these keys. He hasn't done it yet. It's something that's going to occur in the future and actually does occur when the Holy Spirit is given as a gift at the same time that the holy spirit is given as a gift the nature of the keys the the kind of opening and closing that they refer to is also revealed you find this in john chapter 20 in verse 22 and 23 jesus says receive the holy spirit if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them if you withhold forgiveness from any it is withheld so this binding and loosing is tied to forgiveness and the withholding of forgiveness. And the plain sense of that seems to suggest that the apostles receive power over people's salvation. As if Jesus was saying, you decide who to forgive and God will go along with whatever you decide. Which, if we believe that, would turn salvation on its head and would fly in the face of what Scripture teaches elsewhere. So perhaps there's a context that will help us understand what these words truly mean. If you look in the book of Revelation again, in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is revealed and actually describes himself. When he describes himself, he says something interesting. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So he refers to his resurrection. I am alive forevermore. Jesus has defeated the grave and so he has the keys to death. He has the power to open and close the doors. What we might call the power of life and death. To enter the kingdom of God is to enter into life. So we can't read Matthew 16 as if Jesus is giving away that power. The keys are Jesus's. And he hands them to the church in the sense that he delegates his authority. He doesn't surrender it, he delegates it. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. We do not pray that as we do on earth, your will should be changed in heaven. That's not the direction that this works in. So as we look at Jesus' words, we need to be careful how we read them. When we think about the relationship between what is done on earth and what happens in heaven, the picture is not earth changing heaven, but the other way around. When Jesus says, shall be bound and shall be loosed, that phrase in English, that's translated into simple future tense. But in Greek, it's more complicated and unwieldy, which is why it's translated in English in a simpler way. In Greek, it's the future periphrastic perfect that's being used, which, as you know, is a tense that refers to something that in the future will have happened. In other words, Jesus is saying something more like, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. So it isn't as simple as it sounds. The idea seems to be not that the apostles have the power to change the will of God, but that when they act together, what they decide corresponds to what will have been decided in heaven. In other words, they will be acting in a sense the way we've seen Peter act here inspired by God out ahead of their own understanding that the judgments they make will be wiser than these men are capable of being because they will be things that correspond to the will of God. Now, when we get to Matthew 18, we'll see how this relates to things like church discipline in the negative sense, uh, how those keys can be used to close the door, so to speak, But here, let's just consider the use of the keys in the positive sense, that these keys to the kingdom are a means of throwing open the doors so that when we imagine this household of God and we imagine these walls and ourselves stacked as bricks, we must also picture those outside the walls and recognize that the gift being given is a gift that opens the doors of the kingdom so that those who are outside might enter in. As the church calls you to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that preaching of the Word throws open the doors of the kingdom. It says to you, you who are outside, come in. You who are outside, enter. Confess the faith. And Jesus will take you by the hand and He will place you in your place in this household of God. And then finally, cryptically, Jesus strictly charges the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It's an interesting note to sound after such a momentous event when Jesus' identity is finally revealed. The expectation that you have is sort of a Matthew 28 thing. Like now that Peter's finally said it, we expect Jesus to say, now go and tell everyone. And Jesus says, be sure to tell no one. Why? Because the time isn't right. Because all this has to do with God's divine timing. This idea that that during this season leading up to the cross, sometimes the believers are called upon not to reveal Christ, but to conceal Him. To tell no one instead of telling everyone is because the time was not yet right for this knowledge to be made known, but the time was coming and would come at Pentecost, for example. For a season they were told to keep what God had revealed to themselves, but brothers and sisters, that time has long passed. We are now living on the other side of God's timetable after Pentecost when the commission to us is indeed to go and tell, as Paul declared to the Athenians, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. What changed? What changed between Peter's confession and Mars Hill? Well, the resurrection is what changed. Paul says it in Acts 17: Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead the accomplishment of Christ's victory over death, his snatching of the keys to death and hell. This is what's changed, and this is why the time is now right to call everyone everywhere to turn to him. Jesus has the keys in his hand. He's opened the locked door of death, and he calls to you to come out of there. The anointed Son of the living God has sent his ministers to declare the good news that the doors are open. Come in. So do it. Come in. Join us. Join us in confessing the faith delivered once for all to the saints. Join us in confessing the faith that Peter confessed. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks you. Answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thank you for listening.